Welcome to Season 2 of Ed Infinitum. Before we get rolling, two announcements. The first is that, starting this season, I'm rectifying a grievous deficit in my podcast. As a responsible scholar, I really should be making my sources available for you to see. And the honest truth is that, as a volunteer podcaster working two other paying jobs, I just haven't had the time to sit down and put all my sources in nice, alphabetical, APA-compliant format. I still don't, but my compromise is to provide a list of all the links to all the documents I've used to research a given episode, which you'll be able to access in that episode's area on our show's website, edinfinitum.com. That's ed-infinitum.com. It's better than nothing, and really, it's my duty as an educator to give my listeners the means to further explore the ideas and information that I raise in this show. Second, I've begun a sponsorship arrangement with Audible.com, so starting this season, every episode will begin with a brief advertisement for their ebook service, which, to be frank, I really do think is quite good. And if people click the link to start a free trial with Audible, the podcast will get some small amount of sponsorship money, so please do consider doing so. The ad's going to play in just a moment, after which I invite you to please enjoy the kickoff episode to Season 2 of Ed Infinitum. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces, to claim your offer. This week, I'm recommending Exhalation by Ted Chang. It's a sci-fi anthology of near-future stories, in the style of Black Mirror, but much less downbeat and cynical. Rather, what unites all of these stories is the question of how we grapple and deal with inevitability, things that are going to happen no matter what we do, and the nobility or the tragedy of those attempts. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One more time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 1. Just what is the deal with charter schools? There are a few topics in the world of public education that are more divisive than the issue of charter schools. As with many things in our divided country right now, most people's opinion of charter schools is as much a matter of ideology as it is of understanding how charter schools actually operate, and how well they do or do not serve students, their larger communities, and America as a whole. If you've already planted your ideological flag, then today's episode probably won't change your mind one way or the other, and that's not really my intention anyway. Rather, what I'm aiming to do in the next half hour or so is to help you learn more about the origins and mechanics of charter schools, as well as give a cursory survey of the research about them. Whether or not this information moves your opinion's needle, I hope you'll walk away knowing at least one thing you didn't know before about charter schools. So let's dive in. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, back in the year 2000, charter schools had been legal for nine years, and about 250,000 American children were enrolled in charter schools. By 2016, that number had risen to nearly 3 million, or about 6% of all public school students, enrolled in 7,000-ish charter schools across 44 states in the U.S. If you're curious as to the six states that prohibited charter schools at that time, there were Alabama, Kentucky, Nebraska, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, and West Virginia. 
So while we're not talking about a huge proportion of American students in charters, remember about 6%, it is a proportion that's been rising swiftly, a 70% increase from 2009 to 2016 alone. Opponents and proponents alike argue that charter schools don't just affect the students enrolled in them, but also all of the other public school students in their communities, for good or ill, depending on who you talk to. U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos has consistently called for a larger role for charter schools to play in the public education landscape, going so far as to argue that traditional public schools represent, quote, a dead end, unquote. The American Federation of Teachers, one of the two major teachers' unions of the United States, has opposed charter school-related legislation on the grounds that, quote, it promotes profiteering, promotes unsound educational practices, or is detrimental to communities and students, unquote. So charter schools are an important subject to be aware of, no matter how you slice it. But what are charter schools, and how did they come to be? Despite what an observer today might think, charters began as the invention not of a conservative pro-business entrepreneur in a Washington think tank. They actually began with an English teacher and professor of education from Western Massachusetts. Hey, kind of like me. This man's name was Ray Budd. And he was actually born in St. Louis in 1923. He moved to Massachusetts much later. Before that, he served in the Pacific War, earned a Purple Heart, went to ed school, and became first a teacher, then a vice principal in Michigan. Eventually, Bud earned his doctorate in education and became an ed professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, just down the road from my own hometown of Northampton. Like many of us veteran teachers who become ed professors, Bud sought to understand and address the problems he saw in public education. Those problems, in his view, were that schools suffered from too much unnecessary bureaucracy, and that teachers didn't have the authority they needed to teach students in the ways that benefited those students the most. He was a big fan of John Dewey, whom he quoted in the epigraph of his eventual book, as follows, quote, All other reforms are conditioned upon reform in the quality and character of those who engage in the teaching profession, unquote. In Bud's view, those folks engaging in the teaching profession were being stymied. So in 1974, he writes up a proposal, and in it, he says that the classic hierarchy of governance in American public schools, school board to superintendent to principal to vice principal to teachers, should be compressed. Cut out the middleman, he argued. If teachers were feeling stifled, then they should be able to directly petition school committees to operate more independently in their classrooms, or even to start new schools of their own. What they would be petitioning for would be a legal document of permission that outlines the rights and responsibilities the school committee would give to these teachers. That document is called a charter. These hypothetical new schools would allow teachers to be innovative and try out new ideas to reach students who weren't being served by existing school structures. It was truly a radical and transformational notion, and it went nowhere. It seems shockingly that not a lot of people listen to know-it-all education professors from Massachusetts. Who knew? It takes Bud 14 years, but finally, in 1988, he publishes a book based on his idea, which he entitles Education by Charter, Restructuring School Districts Key to Long-Term Continuing Improvement in American Education. Yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful. But in 1988, the landscape of American public education was in a very, very different place than it had been when Bud first came up with his idea. Just five years earlier, the Reagan administration's National Commission on Education had published A Nation at Risk, and Season 1, Episode 3 of this podcast goes into a lot of detail about that report and its impact. But the short version is, A Nation at Risk surveyed thousands of American students and found that a lot of them were graduating without the skills they needed to succeed in the job world 
because American public education was never centralized, but rather farmed out to about 13,000 different towns and districts, each of which paid for its own schools and, to a large extent, set its own curriculum and practices through locally elected school committees. There were wild disparities between the education that students in different states, or even in different towns within a state, received. See Season 1, Episode 1 of this podcast for much more about that. But the upshot was that something needed to change if public education was to really reach and benefit all students in America. Eventually, what changed was the creation of state-by-state standards for schools and students, with accountability measures by which they were judged and given various carrots and sticks, mostly sticks, with which to try and ensure that schools gave students at least a certain level of education, no matter where they lived. This was the bipartisan No Child Left Behind Act of 2001. NCLB addressed part of the inequities of our public education landscape, The fact that until then, every school district had kind of been free to do whatever it wanted, without anyone really checking up on them in a meaningful way, at least in many states. But NCLB failed to address the other big part of those inequities, which was that since schools were funded primarily by local property taxes, there was no way certain schools in poorer areas could ever realistically compete with schools in affluent ones. But back in 1988, when Bud published his book, that was all still to come. Many voices were still competing to shape the narrative of how to reform schools that were failing their students. And one of those voices came from a man named Albert Schenker. Albert Schenker, and man, do I need to do an episode on him, or even a series, was a legendary left-wing education activist most well-known for helping to found the United Federation of Teachers. That's the big teachers union for all of New York City schools. And he eventually became president of the American Federation of Teachers the National Union. Schenker was known for being a tough negotiator who got results, either at the bargaining table or in the streets leading protests and strikes, or even writing from jail. Over his lifetime, Schenker wrote over 1,300 columns in the New York Times, and even got a mention in the Woody Allen movie Sleeper. In this scene from the film, Woody Allen's character wakes up in a post-apocalyptic future where the inhabitants tell him the following. You are now in the year 2173. This district is what you probably call the southwestern United States. That was before it was destroyed by the war. What? Yes, according to history, over a hundred years ago, a man named Albert Shanker got a hold of a nuclear warhead. Oddly enough, in 1989, 16 years after that movie, Albert Shanker in real life actually did get a hold of what would become the education policy equivalent of a nuclear warhead. And that was Ray Budd's book about the idea of charter schools. Shanker, like Budd, had also been frustrated by top-down control of schools. In one of his New York Times columns, he had decried, quote, here in the U.S. there is much talk of teacher empowerment, but what does empowerment mean if the school's schedule, teacher and pupil class assignments, etc., have all been made in advance, end quote. Schenker had just gotten back from Cologne, Germany, where he'd visited an experimental school where the teachers wrote all the curriculum, got to choose what subjects they taught and how they taught it, and had the freedom to spend more time doing long-term projects with students. Schenker wanted to import something like that to the United States. He called it a project of, quote, risk-taking and change, unquote. Hundreds or thousands of, quote, small learning communities actively looking for better ways, end quote, to educate all children. Schenker named these hypothetical new schools where teachers were free to innovate after Ray Budd's idea, charter schools. Although Schenker put a much more poetic spin on the name, arguing that explorers got charters to seek new lands. Schenker, shockingly, didn't get much of a seat at the table at the George H.W. Bush administration's meetings, but he was invited to St. Paul, Minnesota, where some activists there collaborated with him to pass the nation's first charter school legislation in 1991. 
That was when Minnesota became the first state to permit and create one of these so-called charter schools. From there onward, the idea was released into the wild and evolved in some unpredicted ways. Massachusetts hopped on the bandwagon as an early adopter, allowing for charter schools in 1993 as a means to allow not only innovation and teacher leadership, but also teacher accountability, parental choice, and interestingly enough, collaboration between schools. Many conservative school reformers across the country, however, saw another kind of opportunity presented by charter schools, competition. Basic microeconomic theory, and to be honest, basic levels of economic theory are all I really understand, posit that if you have competition between firms, then those firms will be pushed to raise the quality or value of what they offer in order to secure customers' loyalty. In any given town or district, they argued, public schools represented a monopoly. What motivation did they have to offer more high-quality services, to try out new ideas, if their customers, public school children and their families, had no other choice but to attend? Remember, at that time, and even to a large extent now, where you're allowed to go to school is limited to the town in which your family lives. If you want a sense of how thoroughly this idea of competition from charter schools had come to drive conservative education policy, you have only to look ten years later when, as part of his acceptance speech, Republican presidential nominee John McCain said, quote, Education is the civil rights issue of this century. Equal access to public education has been gained, but what is the value of access to a failing school? We need to shake up failed school bureaucracies with competition, empower parents with choice, end quote. So-called school choice programs gained more and more traction in the early 1990s with various kinds of vouchers and lotteries that would allow some families to send their children to schools besides those in their local public school district, either to private schools or to another more affluent and therefore likelier to be high-performing town. Charter schools, conservative thinkers reasoned, could provide yet another option, and in creating competition, they would force traditional, stuck-in-their-ways schools to compete for students, and the tax dollars that traveled attached to those students. More about that in a few moments. In 1994, President Clinton signed into law an act encouraging and providing funds for the development of more charter schools, which was then expanded even further in 1998. It passed by an 84% vote in the House and a 100% vote in the Senate. It looked like lawmakers on both sides of the aisle wanted to give charter schools a chance. So what did these charters wind up allowing? Well, it varied, but usually a charter gave not only teachers, but also parents, public organizations, and private companies the right to apply for a charter, which, if they were awarded it, gave them both permission and funding to create a charter school. These charter schools, true to Bud and Shanker's vision, were exempt from a lot of the traditional rules and regulations, especially where governance was concerned. While still ultimately accountable to the state and sometimes even the district in which they operate, these charter schools were basically run by whoever started them, and not by a locally elected school committee and their designated representatives. You could consider this a radical departure from the American tradition of democratic control of schools, or a radical acceleration of that tradition, giving not only polities but individuals the power to govern their own schools. But charter schools did remain public schools. They still are. Conflating them with private or independent schools is a common error many people make. But charter schools are still funded by public taxation, and they are tuition-free at the point of delivery. They need to be open to absolutely any student within the geographic bounds designated by their charter. Although, since most charter schools have small student populations by design, this almost inevitably involves some sort of lottery system. What many conservatives found particularly appealing was that most charters also gave these new schools the power to dispense with teachers' unions. The argument was that unions presented yet another layer of potentially obstructive middlemen that could stymie innovations. 
Charter schools needed as much freedom as possible to create new learning environments, and they couldn't do that if they had to negotiate every new change in working conditions, or so the justification went. This also meant that teachers in charter schools were not protected by union contracts that allocated job security based on seniority, or that created many due process hurdles for administrators seeking to dismiss teachers. Charter school leaders had the freedom to hire and fire teachers pretty much at will if they felt it in the best interest of their school. No unions also meant that, without the pressure of collective bargaining to raise teacher wages, charter school leaders could choose to pay teachers less and have that money available to fund other priorities. Many, if not most, charter schools indeed exercise that option. On the average, nationally, charter school teachers get paid about 20% less than teachers in traditional public schools. Although, as a researcher, I do need to caution you that, since on the average the teaching staff at charter schools is also composed of less experienced teachers, and less experienced teachers tend to be paid less, that this could provide another potential explanation for that salary gap. Charter schools are usually free to lift caps on teacher work hours or working conditions, and many charter school teachers do more work hours per week than their traditional school counterparts. For these reasons, as well as concerns about equity issues, which we'll get to in a moment, Al Shanker walked back his support of charter schools only five years after he proposed them, calling them, quote, a mechanical gimmick, unquote. But the genie was out of the bottle as each successive presidential administration brought more freedom and financial support for charter school creators. So charter schools began as something of a leftist, progressive educator dream, and for a while enjoyed bipartisan support. So how did they wind up becoming branded in the present day and age as part of the Republican conservative ethos? And they really have. Over the last decade, support for charter schools as a concept has consistently enjoyed between 60 to 75% support among voters identifying as Republican, but have fallen from 60% in 2012 to the mid to low 40% range among self-identified Democrats. Some of this has, of course, come from teachers' unions and other elements of organized labor who tend to identify as Democrats, and who, for obvious reasons, have serious reservations about charter schools' erosion of teacher pay, working conditions, and union influence. Beyond partisan identity politics, the charter school debate appears to take two forms, a debate about ideology and principles, and a debate about performance and efficacy. The two debates intersect, to be sure, but I think it's useful to disentangle them here just so we can get a better understanding of the landscape. The ideological debate around charter schools tends to center around the value or lack thereof of public versus private control of school operations. That gets very complicated very quickly, so let's take the performance and efficacy debate first, because on the surface it appears more tangible. Do charter schools offer a better educational experience for the students who attend? And if so, do charter schools offer a better educational experience for students in the district who do not attend, due either to the liberal vision of collaboration or the conservative vision of competition increasing quality for all? The answers to all of these questions are, drumroll please, complicated. Depending on your position on the issue, you can cherry-pick your studies. For example, one frequently cited study is Stanford University's 2015 Center for Research and Education Outcomes, or CREDO report, that concluded that, quote, urban charter schools in the aggregate provide significantly higher levels of annual growth in both math and reading scores compared to their traditional public school peers, unquote. It's a pretty persuasive and well-put-together study. On the other hand, CREDO's director at the time, Margaret Raymond, was a very outspoken charter school advocate, and Credo itself is part of the Hoover Institution, a conservative pro-business think tank funded in part by the Walton Foundation, you know, Sam Walton of Walmart fame, who has poured millions of dollars into charter school advocacy. That doesn't mean the study is invalid, but we do need to bear in mind that the purpose of the study from the outset was to demonstrate charter school efficacy as a foregone conclusion, not really to test it, and that's reflected in the research methodology. 
That's often just as true of studies from the Brookings Institute or other liberal think tanks that can take you on tours of charter schools in Arizona or New York or Michigan that seem like complete failures, and then extrapolate from that to make conclusions about charter schools writ large, and then extrapolate from that to make conclusions about charter schools writ large. But you need to keep in mind there's not really such a thing as charter schools writ large, or even urban charter schools or suburban charter schools writ large. Or rather, there kind of is, but it's sort of an imaginary construct. Charter schools, like traditional public schools, are highly variegated and idiosyncratic based on location, student population served, and all kinds of other factors. I think I'm starting to sound like a broken mp3 file, as I must say this at least once every episode, but this high degree of variation between schools makes true comparisons of apples to apples extremely difficult. That's why it's so frustrating to us ed scholars when a study comes out focused on a very specific location and says, aha, charter schools are outperforming, or underperforming, compared to their traditional counterparts. In every serious attempt I've seen to look at this imaginary entity of all charter schools versus this equally imaginary entity of all traditional public schools, and by serious I mean trying as much as possible to hold constant factors like socioeconomics and race and percentage of special needs students, etc., then charters generally perform, well, about the same as traditional public schools. Even the most pro-charter leaning of such studies say that only about 25% to 30% of charters outperform traditional public schools serving comparable populations. But oh, 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 does it get more complicated than that? Because sometimes even those comparable populations aren't exactly comparable. One of the biggest criticisms I've seen levied at charter schools, actually the one I find most persuasive, is that although they are legally obligated to accept all students within the purview of their charter, in practice, there are many ways in which, shall we say, less-than-scrupulous charter school operators can in fact be highly selective about their student population, in such a way that they can skew their achievement data by retaining mainly the most successful of their students. I say retaining because, remember, charter schools can't refuse admission to students who have special learning needs, or who come from particularly unstable home environments, or who present with any of the other factors correlated with low academic achievement. Of course, sometimes they do anyway. Reuters published a pretty damning report in 2013 about all kinds of barriers in certain charter school admissions processes, some of them quite illegal, that privileged families of already successful students for applications. But if charter schools are caught doing that, they get in big trouble. But there are all kinds of technically legal ways to manipulate student population through expulsion, such as the process that charter school opponents call creaming, in which low-achieving or otherwise difficult-to-teach students can, in one way or another, find themselves cold as the months go on. Expulsion due to behavior issues is usually the means by which this happens. With a traditional public school, the bar for expulsion is extraordinarily high. I have seen students literally attack teachers with deadly weapons and find their way back into the classroom again after a brief suspension. A student's right to a free public education is that kind of paramount. But there is no enshrined right to a free public education at a particular charter school. Students can be expelled for simply mouthing off to a teacher, or not taking off their hat when asked. And since there's almost always a traditional public school down the street that will still have to take them, their right to a free public education has not been abrogated. Since students with behavior challenges tend to be low achievers, kicking out these kids radically tilts the achievement data in some charter schools' favor. Now, to be clear, not all charter schools operate this way, but there have been some very high-profile examples that have caught headlines in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Boston, Nashville, San Francisco, Chicago, Montclair, it's kind of an embarrassingly long list. To zoom in on two examples, in Chicago, about five students in every 10,000 were expelled from traditional district public schools, while with charters in Chicago, 
it was 61 students for every 10,000. That's more than 10 times the rate. Charter schools expelled students in Washington, D.C. at more than 70 times the rate of the district's traditional public schools. Now, you do have to look at those statistics carefully as well, because many charter schools have a high percentage of African-American and Latinx students, and these are groups that have higher suspension and expulsion rates at any school. I need to do a podcast on that phenomenon as well, because, man, there is a lot of institutional racism in school discipline. But remember, if a charter school is smaller than its local traditional public school counterpart, as is often the case, every student expelled has a much higher impact on their average test scores. The data on suspension rates is also a rich topic for conversation. For example, a 2016 study by the Civil Rights Project at UCLA analyzed charter school discipline records nationwide and found 374 charter schools that had suspended 25% or more of their entire student body during the course of a single year. But for our purposes, we're looking at students who are permanently removed, along with their potentially damning test scores. What this means is that even if charter schools demonstrate that a particular demographic, say low-income Latino male students, has higher achievement in a charter environment than they do on average in traditional public schools, we have to ask if they are serving the same low-income Latino male students in the sense that they have parents equally invested in and able to support their education, that they have equally good diets and health profiles, that they have equal degrees of neurotypicality, and importantly, have equal degrees of complying with everything teachers say, most or all of the time, and committing few or no behavioral infractions. Because if they don't, then it's not really a fair comparison. As an old research teacher of mine once said, I can deliver any result you want if you let me control the sample. There are some rigorous studies out there that really go the distance in trying to get all of these comparisons to be as apples to apples as possible. But most, overwhelmingly most, don't. Either due to ideological bias one way or the other, or because it's just nearly impossible to do it. It's not impossible because all charter schools are messing around with their student population intentionally or not, but because enough of them are to make determinations about charter school versus traditional public school performance difficult to make, or at the very least, difficult to draw generalizations from. So no easy answer to whether students at charter schools overall outperform their traditional public school counterparts or not. For sure, some do, some don't. Kinda like traditional public schools versus each other. But what about the other part of the charter school promise? That either through collaboration and serving as innovation tanks, or through competition putting pressure on traditional public schools, that the rising tide of charters will wind up lifting all schools' boats? Once again, you're dealing with problematic studies and problematic data. The next section of this episode draws heavily from a meta-analysis published by the AASA, the School Superintendents Association, so credit where credit's due. You really should read their report for more detail. In summary, the AASA aggregated a number of the most rigorous competitive effects studies from more than seven states, including Arizona, California, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, and Texas. And about half report positive effects in charter schools on local traditional public school student performance, and about half report negative effects. Well, that doesn't exactly answer our question, does it? Worse, if you categorize the studies by state or by research methodology, there wind up being no patterns whatsoever. Why is this all so gosh darn difficult? Well, the AASA acknowledges the challenge from a research perspective in trying to figure out if charter schools raise the quality of local traditional public schools. And that's, you can't ever really create a good comparison study. You can't look at the same traditional public school in the real world and create a scenario where it contends with a local charter school and another scenario where it doesn't in the same year with the same outside conditions and the same population of students. So you do a couple of things instead. You look at student performance in schools that are somehow similar, except that some have charters nearby and some don't. 
or you look at performance of similar student populations at traditional public schools before and after a charter school gets started in the same district. In other words, a longitudinal study, although not really because you're not looking at the same students over time necessarily, just the same schools. Charter opponents often cite certain charters' shady admissions practices, or slightly less shady grieving practices, as a source of brain drain from local districts, as well as funding drain. Under charter law, tax-based per-pupil expenditure follows a student wherever she goes. So on the one hand, a traditional public school that loses this student-attached money also has one less student to teach, so it should balance out. Except the traditional school's fixed costs, like heating and electricity, remain the same, and now with that much less capital to pay them. One of my colleagues once crafted a rather memorable metaphor. Charter schools, he said, are like lifeboats fleeing the Titanic. They save some passengers, and only some passengers, and then fire torpedoes back at the sinking ship as they leave. Is there data to support this is actually happening? Well, we just finished talking a few moments ago about how comparing student performance in charters versus traditional public schools is difficult because the assignment to each is non-random. They're not necessarily educating the same particular kinds of students. Well, that's also true of the kinds of communities in which charter schools are built. They're more likely, for obvious reasons, to be located in places where families are already worried about the quality of their local traditional public school. You don't see too many charters showing up in ritzy suburbs to compete with the high-performing schools there. Instead, you tend to see them in economically struggling urban and, to a lesser extent, rural areas with failing schools. This means that if a study finds, aha, a charter school appeared in the area and then quality of the existing traditional public school nearby went down, well, a lot of those schools were on the downward trend anyway. As another counter to the brain drain argument, pro-charter advocates point out that in areas where charter schools target lower-performing students, then the remaining average performance of remaining students in the traditional public schools would increase. But if this is the case, then neither cooperation nor competition would be the cause of this rise in scores. It would just be a result of reshuffling the students. Do you have a headache yet? Okay, so if we can all agree that charter schools are more or less as effective with students taken as a nationwide average as traditional public schools with plenty of outlying cases on both ends of the spectrum, then it's time to talk about major conflicts in ideology, and the idea of taking a system that has been a public trust for a century, give or take, and turning parts of it over to private hands. Is this something that you welcome, or something that really bothers you? To be clear, charter schools don't really take schools out of public control entirely. There are still accountability mechanisms designed and enforced by the state, which are in turn theoretically subject to change through legislation, lobbying, voting, and all the usual methods that citizens have at their disposal for getting anything done in a democracy. But remember Bud's concerns way back in the 1970s. Having a school committee, which then portions out power to a superintendent, who then portions it out to a curriculum coordinator, and then a principal, all of whom have to strike agreements with unions, well, this creates an awful lot of red tape to get anything done. From my own experience, trying to add a new course to our English curriculum at the high school where I taught was a several-year process. Even adding a book to the curriculum could take over a year. As a teacher, I had to write a lengthy rationale, run the book by three of my colleagues, and then the whole department of 15 had to take it up in discussion, and then the department chair had to make the call, and then pass it on to the principal for approval, who then ran it by the curriculum coordinator, who sent it back to us so we could fill out civil rights audit forms for state evaluators, I'm not making this up. It takes so long to get the slightest thing done, and that's assuming people at every stage of the process want to help you, as opposed to want to throw up roadblocks, which it's very easy to do. Imagine how challenging it is to, say, remake the daily schedule so that there are longer blocks in which students can do project-based learning. You're talking years and years, if ever. A charter school, by contrast, holds the promise of efficiency. 
Just have one small group handle all of this with near-complete autonomy, and stuff will get done. Of course, that also means a heck of a lot of work for everyone in that small group, not to mention a lot of risk of failure. In many states, charter schools face stricter accountability measures than their traditional school counterparts. While there are indeed altruists out there willing and able to put in all that work, a lot of people wouldn't take on that much work and that much risk if there wasn't some potential for profit. Even among charter school advocates, you'll often see discomfort with for-profit charter models. Marshall Tuck, a California entrepreneur and politician who made a career in the early 20-teens lobbying for charter schools, nevertheless publicly supported a statewide ban on for-profit charters. Public schools must serve students, not shareholders, Tuck wrote. Profit has no place in our public schools. The concerns Tuck represents are similar to those of citizens who support public health care. When you put a for-profit company in charge of something, they say, whether it's medical care of our sick or the education of our children, either of those goals risks taking a back seat if it comes at odds with the larger goal of making money. Looking at the record of for-profit charters does give some credence to that theory. For-profit charters tend to make annual yearly progress in accountability scores about 10 to 15% less often than not-for-profit charters. There were some high-profile cases of financial malfeasance and profit-skimming among early 2000s for-profit charter schools, and this led to a great deal of public pushback, including the outright banning of for-profit charters in many states. Today, fewer than 12% of charter schools are for-profit. But that doesn't precisely mean that 88% of charter schools operate without an eye towards profit at all. As mentioned before, it's really hard work to run a school, especially when you've predicated your school on not having nearly as much bureaucracy as traditional schools do. That means fewer hands on deck to do everything, and a smaller potential pool of expertise with which to do it. Sooner or later, a lot of charter schools turn to EMOs, or EMOs. If you're envisioning a moody-looking boy with slicked-back hair wearing black clothes and pining over his lost love, no, not that kind of emo. This kind of emo stands for Education Management Organization. These are private, very much for-profit firms who make their profit from the tax dollars that the nonprofit charter school pays them to run things at their nonprofit charter school. Follow that? About 30 to 40 percent of charters nationwide contract out to emos, and some charter schools hand over as much as 95 percent of their revenue to for-profit emos. So while the charter group itself isn't getting rich, the emos sure are especially those that operate in multiple schools at once. There have even apparently been some cases where all of the school's assets, from computers to art supplies to furniture, are handed over as property of the emo, which means that if for some reason the charter holder and the emo fall out of love with each other, the emo can take their football and walk away, so to speak, and bring all those supplies somewhere else. And then there's the weird world of charter school real estate investment, which sprang out of the Community Tax Relief Act of 2000. It gives all sorts of perks to real estate developers who handle the land and physical plant of charter schools and allows them, through some convoluted process I don't really understand even after reading it several times over, to potentially make a huge profit and even somehow to make the town effectively pay for the building twice? Or so says Bruce Baker, a professor at Rutgers Graduate School of Education. I've linked to his work on my website, so if you want to head down that rabbit hole, be my guest. There are, of course, even deeper rabbit holes that one could head down, like this charter group called Gulen Charters that required its faculty to pay portions of their salaries to Turkish religious opposition groups. But the majority of charter schools have not defrauded their communities, nor have they funded questionable international ventures. Most of them are, in the final analysis, well, just schools. Yet charter schools can serve as a placeholder for all kinds of larger ideological battles in our country about the role of government versus corporations, 
or about the role of organized labor, or about structural racism. Remember, I haven't even sent more than a toe into the whole issue of race and a disturbing trend among some charter schools of imposing oppressive, military-like discipline for students of color under the guise of a rigorous education. And I didn't talk at all about charter schools that serve mainly as inroads for various religious groups to really push the boundaries of church and state separation. In short, charters are just a Pandora's box into which you can stuff nearly every controversy America's dealing with. As for me, I've gone back and forth and continue to vacillate in my personal opinion about charter schools. As a unionized employee, I rely upon strong organized labor to keep my work conditions sane and manageable. And to a very large extent, teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. Teachers burn out of charter schools at a rate of 25 to 30 percent on average versus only 15 percent of traditional public schools. And while that's not solely attributable to working conditions, it's a big part. At the same time, as a teacher with, as you may have been able to glean if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, some progressive ideas about how schools could change for the benefit of student engagement and learning, then the idea of being able to, well, actually operationalize some of those ideas, it's thrilling. I have spoken to some charter school teachers who cite ownership over their curriculum and instructional methods, or freedom to innovate, as the number one reason why they've stayed at their jobs, some for a decade or longer. As an education scholar and consultant, I've hit my head against so many brick walls when working with traditional public schools, some of which have administrators and faculty alike who recognize the need to stop running their school like a 19th century factory and do more student-centered, project-based, interdisciplinary, inquiry-focused kinds of activities. But somehow, no one is able to escape the inertia of the old system. It's the superintendent. It's the bus schedule. It's the custodian's contract. It's the zoning laws. Over and over, there's always some reason why change can't happen. Charter schools can start fresh from the ground up, with no undertow of institutional memory constantly dragging everything backwards. They can change courses midstream and reinvent themselves on the fly if they need to. That's what a school has to do in order to stay current and adaptable to the needs of the very real students who they serve. That was Stubbs' vision, and Shanker's way back when. But I'm also not so naive that I miss the fact that there are some very influential folks, the Koch brothers, Sam Walton, Mike Bloomberg, Bill Gates, who spend tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars trying to influence the charter school landscape for various reasons that may or may not have to do with education at all. If my own child goes to a charter school that serves its students amazingly well with innovations up the wazoo, does it matter that said school might be a pawn of someone's political scheme that I might not agree with? And speaking of my own kids, they're in a traditional public school. But I'd be lying if I didn't say I was envious of some of the opportunities I see kids having in nearby charters. White, middle-class professionals like me have, among our other privileges, the skills and experience to navigate the charter admissions processes fairly well, which reinforces the image of some charter schools as publicly funded country clubs that cement inequality in the United States. Yet many of the strongest advocates for charter schools that I've met have been folks of color from low-income areas for whom charters represent an escape from an underfunded, dysfunctional, or even dangerous traditional public school. Who the heck am I to tell them they shouldn't be able to have that option? I'll close with the words of Ted Coldery, one of those teachers that Al Shanker worked with to pass the very first ever charter school legislation in Minnesota. Our objective, he said, was an effort to get this huge $600 billion a year system to begin to change. It is just so difficult, even when it's desperately needed. The education code is a stack of books about a foot high, and the idea was if you could just liberate students and teachers to try things, it would be a way to integrate change into K-12, end quote. Charter schools are an imperfect solution to that need to change. But show me a perfect solution for anything in the world of public education, or for anything in the world at all. Before we pass final judgment on charter schools, let's first see someone develop a better solution that we can compare them to.
That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. Long before the COVID-19 crisis forced it upon all of us, remote learning was a regular thing in certain parts of rural Australia. Because of the vast distances between school buildings in Australia's rural regions, many students in those regions have for years attended class remotely via listening to radio broadcasts and turning their work in via postal mail. Good day, and see you next time.